So if you'd open 1 Timothy at chapter 1, that's where I want to start today. Uh, we're going to be looking at that for a number of months. I know Dave introduced it uh, a week or two ago and gave some of the background, so I won't need to do that. But I do want to pick up from the beginning of chapter 1, and I want, before we even read it, just to catch your imagination and actually give you a little tiny bit of the setting. Because there's a story behind this book of the Bible. Around AD 62, Paul and Timothy were on their way to Macedonia and they went through Ephesus to visit the church there, which had been a brilliant, lively, large church that they had been involved or Paul had been involved in planting. You can read the story of the start of the Ephesian church in Acts 19 and it's quite an exciting story. But This stopover in Ephesus turned out to be a small disaster. This bright growing church now had false teachers who were well embedded in it and were undermining its trust in the gospel. And amazingly, two of the leaders of the church were involved in the false teaching. And so Paul had to remove these men from office and put them out of the church fellowship. Discipline them. Now here's the first lesson. The early church had problems. It was not like just the golden age where they got everything right. Most of the letters in the New Testament are written in a background of problems. Galatians uh, and and, uh, Corinthians are obvious examples. Actually, the early church was battling with problems all the time. And yet, they managed to turn the world upside down in their generation. Is that encouraging? I think that's encouraging. The 30 years of the book of Acts, because Acts does cover about 30 years historically, are years of great progress with the church. Years of great impact on the Roman Empire and the world of the Eastern Mediterranean. And I believe, I really believe this, that God is almost challenging us with the book of Acts that in any 30 years of church history, we ought to have the same sort of impact, we the church, as they did in the first 30 years. That's just the first scene of the great drama of church history. And I think the the power of it is, why couldn't any 30 years be like this? Well, it can be. The power of the Holy Spirit. And you don't have to get everything right. It's nice if you can. You have battles. You have troubles. They'd had troubles at Ephesus. They had troubles elsewhere. But actually, with the power of the Holy Spirit and a passion for Jesus, you can still make a huge impact. And I believe that for our day and generation. I really do. I believe whatever difficulties we meet, and here we're seeing two leaders having to put out of church fellowship and discipline, whatever difficulties we meet, the church of Jesus Christ can forge forward in any generation. Amen? It's the same for our generation. Well, Paul had to go on to Macedonia. So he left Timothy to sort out the situation at Ephesus. We'll see that when we read verse 3 in a minute. Now, 1 Timothy is written to an individual, to Timothy, to strengthen his resolve and instruct him how to handle the problems at Ephesus. But most commentators agree that it was probably also expected to be an open letter. It was to be read to the church as well. So that they would see their errors, they would understand Paul's concerns, and that they would know that Timothy had Paul's full backing in what he was doing. The letter had enormous impact. 
It clearly had power and anointing. It was clearly a God word. It came with impact and it was recognised as such. And it quickly became part of a collection of letters and writings that passed around the churches in the first century as being particularly anointed with particular authority and impact and instruction for church life. And that was the beginning of our New Testament. And frankly, the makeup of the New Testament has not changed massively from that first century. Without giving you a history lesson, the later councils were primarily to just make sure that uh, apocryphal works weren't added to this main body of received authoritative word of God, of which Timothy was rightly a part. It was a letter then from the Holy Spirit to an individual and to a church, Both targets, individual and corporate. And that's how I want us to read it and see it. There's words here for individuals, there's for us. But there's also quite a lot for us as a church, corporately. So let's read the first chapter, which I'll probably stay with for two or three weeks. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, unholy and irreligious for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Those two are probably the leaders that I referred to, those two names at the end. 
Well, I just say, I want to spend a couple of weeks on this, maybe three. And let's just get into it by looking back at the first sentence for a moment. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Now, you could gloss over this as a, a, a greeting, and it is a greeting. They had greetings like we do at the beginning of our letters and emails. But, but it's a little more than just a formal uh, introduction. There is clearly a warm relationship, not only here, my true son in the faith, but almost incidentally, verse 18, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction. Paul's relationship with Timothy is fascinating. And I want us to just take a moment or two to talk about it right at the beginning. It shows that healthy, lasting Christian relationships are not based on what we've got in common. On similarities of background, similar characters, similar age, similar social grouping. The faith we belong to, the church, is not based on all being the same, all being of similar intellect or social background at all. What unites us is our love for Jesus and what he's done for us and what we've understood about the gospel and our passion for Jesus, his name and his church. And our desire to obey him. That's what unites us, isn't it? It really is. It's not like we'd have all been together anyway. You wouldn't have been in a room with me. No, you wouldn't. Four or five of you might have been. I wouldn't have let the rest of you. <laughs> no, that's not true. But well, you know what I mean? So you, do you sometimes think like that? You think, what am I doing here? But not nastily. You think, how did I get here? We would not, most of us would not naturally end up together. It's something that Jesus has done for us. I honestly believe Jesus draws us together and gives us a unity which is more powerful than just natural affiliations. You find fellowship in Jesus and what he means for you and that overrides cultural differences that might keep you apart. The church is meant to be a wonderful variety of people and types. It's meant to be unity and diversity. It really is. It really is. And I know there are modern ideas that you build churches that have single focus, like for young 20-year-olds and for old people and for children and for teens. I mean, I understand that we need, we'll talk about it in a moment, we need our friends in a similar social group, but actually the church is not meant to be like that. Jesus breaks down the barriers. Let's just quickly consider the contrast between the life or the personhood, of, if you like, of Paul and Timothy, just quickly. First of all, Paul was much older than Timothy. We know quite a bit from history. Paul first met Timothy on his visit to Lystra, which is in Galatia, in AD 46. It seems possible that Timothy was converted through Paul's ministry, which is why he calls him his true son in the faith. Timothy was probably 15 years old at that time. So as a 15-year-old, is anybody here who's 15 or 16? Might have been 16. Thank you. Paul was over 40. Here's another one. Anybody here between 40 and 45? They did put a hand up. So that's the sort of gaps we're talking about. Paul was possibly 40, just over. We don't quite precisely know. And Timothy was somewhere like 15 or 16. Now, Timothy probably got saved under the ministry of Paul. When Paul made another visit to Lystra, 40, AD 49-50, the local believers recommended Timothy as having grown remarkably in God. He was now a promising young man of 19 or 20. Who here is 19 or 20? Well done. Thank you. 
So, by this time, of course, Paul also got older, because that tends to happen, irritatingly enough, doesn't it? We all shift along. So, we're talking now about someone approaching 50 in Paul's case. And, and Timothy was recommended to him uh, as, uh, we really don't know precisely, I have to say, maybe mid-40s with Paul, it's a little hard to pin down. But Tim, Tim was recommended to him as someone who had really grown in God. And Paul invites him to go on the, uh, on the next missionary journey with him. And so, a lifelong friendship begins. Now, by the time this letter is written, Timothy may be about 35, mid-30s, and Paul may be approaching 60. Again, as I say, they're not as precise as we were. You haven't got their birth certificate and all the rest of it like we do. But there's a pretty good idea that that was roughly the sort of gap. Now, I think that is a wonderful example for all of us. Age is not a barrier to true friendship and fellowship in the kingdom of God. What unites us is our passion for Jesus. If we really got a passion for Jesus, you will have fellowship with all sorts of people who've got a passion for Jesus, who are not at all like you. Now, it's not that you have to do all the same stuff. Over many years, I have enjoyed, I enjoy today, fellowship with young people who love Jesus. Young guys and girls who really are clearly passionate for Jesus. Now, they do loads of things that I don't do, couldn't do, or want to do. You know, I can't surf, I can't skateboard, I can't can't work an Xbox or a PlayStation. I don't know what Halo 3 is. I thought it was something for saints. And apparently it's a new game. Um, And... and you know, and, and they wouldn't over be thrilled with what I really enjoy doing, like bird watching and reading the Daily Telegraph from end to end, and all these other exciting things that I do when I want to relax. And, and, and so, actually, socially, we might not sort of like, they might say, okay, to go round to John, you've got a bird watch. Oh, thrilling. But at, at, that's not the issue. That is not the issue. When we talk about Jesus, when we're talking about the church, when we're wanting to worship, I I, I find fellowship. I find my aged limbs want to move and clap, and sometimes I feel I'm livelier than some of them. And and, and you feel that there's a, a resonance in your spirit with those who love Jesus. Now, I've always found that. Over 40 years as a Christian, I've found people from different cultural backgrounds, and I have genuinely experienced quite a wide range I've experienced a lot of quite needy people and quite poorly educated people. I'm experiencing more in recent years, people who are a lot brighter than I am and, uh, and you know, and uh, have all sorts of resources that I might not have. And yet, if we love Jesus, we, we find a terrific fellowship. I can sit with someone older than me who loves Jesus and I just know my heart's near. Someone lots younger than me and, and maybe from, a, and obviously, I've had the privilege of travelling over the last 40 years and going to other countries. And it's exactly the same. When you meet people who love Jesus, a great fellowship. That is what the church is about. Paul's background was quite a stern, orthodox Jewish one. He called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Timothy, on the other hand, came from a mixed marriage. His mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek and probably not a Christian. There's every indication that he was just a pagan. And in fact, on their first missionary journey... Paul had Timothy circumcised. That shows commitment, doesn't it? 20-year-old Timothy circumcised. Um, Now, the reason for that was to make him acceptable for the Jews who Paul was working working with at that time. I often wonder if Paul later on would have bothered so much, because they were learning as they went along. And in that stage, he he was ministering to the Jews a lot, and he 
I actually felt, and it did make Timothy more acceptable. So dear old Timothy, his commitment to Paul was pretty clear and pretty devout, wasn't it? But I want you to know that they had very different backgrounds. So you've got mixed marriage. I mean, in his natural state, Paul would not have had anything to do with Timothy, with a Greek father and and a pagan father. I just want to challenge us in this opening comments. Are we free of snobbery and racism? Are you healthily colourblind in Jesus? That if this person loves Jesus, I don't care what the colour of their skin is. I don't care whether they speak with an Oxbridge accent or the East End. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Really, 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 really doesn't matter. Not politely, politically correct modern Britain really doesn't matter. In your gut, you just love someone who loves Jesus. And you don't think, well, look at the car they're driving or not driving, or the voice, what it's like or not like. That is not an issue. Colour of their skin is not an issue. Their cultural background, their class is not an issue. That is how it should be in the church. The barriers come right down in Jesus Christ. It is a fundamental truth which Paul taught powerfully to the Ephesians, actually, by the way, in the early chapters of the letter to the Ephesians. The walls come down. We no longer relate to people on a fleshly basis, Paul said. We don't do it. We don't relate like we used to. We relate on a spiritual basis. Now, that's an interesting one, which I'm going to briefly comment on. That means we're committed to people as long as they're committed to Jesus. In a way, our friendships are conditional on our relationship in Christ. So it's not quite like any fleshly relationship. It's not people we just get on with and well with and we sort of resonate with naturally. But it's also true that we may get on very, very well with people and then they fall away and turn their back on Jesus. That alters my friendship with you. I am only committed to you as you are committed to Jesus. That's not a conditional thing on my behalf. That is the dynamic of what will happen. Because the core of my fellowship with you is that you love the same Lord I do and we're together. It's not me sitting here doing a little checklist and excluding you. It is a reality that our fellowship is around Jesus. And that's where we are drawn together. That's how it works. There's another area with difference between Paul and Timothy. Timothy was clearly timid or to some degree fearful. He suffered from frequent stomach problems. There's a distinct feeling he wasn't too robust. Though I thought when I was preparing this, that's all a bit relative. I think it's pretty robust to have a circumcision at the age of 20 with no anaesthetic. I, mean, I consider that quite robust, personally. <laughs> so, it's, you know, glad you live in the 21st century, really. So, actually, sorry about going on about that. I hope you... Uh, it sort of catches your imagination, some of these things. <laughs> and, and so there was actually... Relatively speaking, he was a bit of a a sort of timid chap and perhaps not too robust. Now, Paul, we know, was pretty tough cookie. We know that he was a strong character. He clearly was a powerful personality. And he appears to be physically strong. He endures sleeplessness. He's shipwrecked several times. He's whipped, goodness knows how many times. And he seems to still keep going. He seems to be a pretty tough character. We find Paul constantly exhorting Timothy to be strong and courageous, to fight the good fight. We find... Paul telling the Corinthians and others, don't you, me- don't you be horrible to Timothy, basically. You look after him. You respect him. Be sensitive to him. He sort of fights for Timothy a bit in some of his letters to people like the Corinthians. Now, you might, therefore, expect that Paul would despise Timothy and would have no time for him and would actually uh, think, well, he's a bit of a wuss. 
And you, you might actually think that Timothy would find Paul a bit intimidating and a bit scary. But that clearly is not the case. Timothy, and this is quite moving really, Timothy was probably Paul's most intimate and enduring friend. He was certainly his most frequent travelling companion. This is relying on what we learn from the Bible. Their lifelong friendship was obviously close. Paul often refers to him as beloved and faithful son in the Lord, fellow worker. Timothy is involved in the writing and delivering of at least six of Paul's letters that are in our New Testament. We know of at least four major assignments that Paul entrusted to Timothy. One to Thessalonica in AD 50, Corinth AD 53-54, Philippi AD 60-63, and this one to Ephesus AD 63-40. Major assignments we know Paul entrusted to Timothy. Right at the end of his life, when he was facing execution, Paul wants Timothy to be with him. You will find that when we get to 2 Timothy. It is moving, it honestly is moving and powerful. And it proves that there is a deep and special union that can come between believers. That is nothing to do, not only with race, not only with class and background, but even with character. It's not like, you know, I'm, you know, these guys were clearly very different characters. And yet there is an affinity and a oneness in, in Jesus and building the church. Now, be open to that. Be open that God can give you life-changing, lifelong relationships with people you might not have naturally chosen, but they're knitting together with you of heart. Look for it. Look for relationships God gives rooted in Jesus Christ, rooted in your relationship with him. Powerful spiritual bondings, which are made and kept by the Holy Spirit, Let God guide you to them. Look to nurture them when you have them. And it is a privilege and a responsibility to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, raise your sights. We're not just a bunch of people who like to meet in this building on a Sunday. God knits you with people. Yes, you do meet with loads of people you don't particularly know. But actually, even there, in a general way, and in your small groups, we need to be very free to to flow between types of people we wouldn't naturally meet and just fellowship and enjoy it together. But within that spectrum, God will knit your heart to people. And they won't only be your own type. And I think we need to be open to that. It's a precious part of our gospel. Amen? Right, let's move on to the letter itself. I just want to look at one major thing today. I'm not going to, as I say, I'm going to give myself the luxury of a couple more weeks because I, I don't really think that I'm going to cover much more than this today. And I want the most fundamental thing I got out of this chapter is what I want to share with you. And it's that Paul and Timothy's understanding of the character and nature of God is what was the basis for everything they did. Hear that. Paul and Timothy, they're working hard, they're dealing with some real difficulties in the church, they're building the church, they're spreading the gospel, but underneath, through this chapter, again and again, you get an insight into the God they know and love and obey and follow. And really, it is all rooted in God. It's all rooted in your understanding of God, in in your love for him, and in, in who he is and who Jesus Christ is. Let's look at a few things. Just glance at them for a few minutes here this morning. Let God reveal his word to you. Maybe you're a bit jaded here this morning. Maybe you're a bit jaded with life. Maybe you've been a Christian for ages and it's all got a bit dull and boring and familiar. 
Maybe you are a very new Christian, you don't understand very much, and you feel, oh, I don't understand all this stuff I'm supposed to understand, all the doctrines, they make me confused. Maybe you're not even a Christian this morning, but you're interested. I think any one of us, whoever we are, just listen for a few minutes as we look at a Holy Spirit's insight into the God we love and worship. And the God that puts foundations into us that will be life-forming and will drive us forward in his purposes. What is God like? The God that Paul spontaneously broke into worship on in verse 17. Look at verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you look in the context, this is no stylized form. This is not Paul doing something that we might do in a, a nice traditional service. And we, we go through some sort of rote. This is in the middle of writing a letter to Timothy with really quite difficulties. He's going to mention two of them in a few moments. And he just mentions his own testimony, mentions what God's done for him, and he can't help but praise him. And he says, wow, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever. Amen. This is the God Paul knew. This is his daily understanding of God. This is not some uh, doctrine he's got in his head, just like he's learnt it by going to theological college. This is God. He knows God to be like this. And it's our God. It's the God we worship and follow. It is. He's the king. What's that mean? He means he's in charge of everything. The absolute governor of all things. Our God is the absolute governor of everything. He rules over the natural order and he rules over the historical process. God is the most powerful being in existence and all other existences come from him. And he existed before they did. He is eternal. God has no beginning and no end. No one made God. He started the whole thing off. He is the prime motivator of everything. He made everything. He rules over the ages. He is unchanging the I am. Not the I was and I will be. I am. He is eternal nowness. Get your head round that. Everything happens at once to God. It is an eternal now to God. He is eternal. I personally think that's probably one of the reasons he can do all the things we don't understand. Predestination and free will. Oh dear, oh dear, that's a tough one. Yeah, well it is a tough one to us, but to God it's not a tough one. And we'll probably understand that better when we're in heaven. But he is over and above the fluctuations of time. He is eternal. He is immortal. He will never die because he never started. He never began, he won't end. He is utterly incorruptible. Completely beyond being touched by death or decay. Completely beyond it. It is just not something that will ever touch God. He is immortal, not subject to any determination of being. Isn't that brilliant? He is invisible. So he is not going to be obvious to your senses. You won't see God in this life. All a human being can ever do is glimpse his glory. Now we can do that. We can glimpse his glory. His glory is the outward shining of his being. And and, and his most clear glimpse of his glory is seen in in Jesus Christ and the face of Jesus Christ, telling us something about his being and who he is. All forms of idols and images are totally wrong. 
Um, they're expressly forbidden in the Bible. Why? Because you can't make an idol of an invisible God. You can't catch his attributes. You can't, you can't do it. He is the only God. The only God. Now just let that sink in. There is one God. Hallelujah. The one motivator, one preeminent being. All else, men, angels, demons, things that people go bump in the night, whatever they are, they are not equivalent to God. They are mere creatures. Some of them are on God's side, angels and those of us who love Jesus. Some aren't. People who are in rebellion against God and demons. But they are all created by him. Now life is complicated, but there's no doubt there is only one creator. One supreme being. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45 verse 8. Now is this one God an ogre or a tyrant? You know, he could be an ogre. He could be a tyrant. There is no rule that says God has to be like this. We sometimes think there is. Oh, God's got to be fair. Why has he got to be fair? Who said? He makes the rules. God is what he is. I am what I am. There is no rule, no principle higher than God that decides what he should be like. Otherwise, that would be God and he'd have to bow to that. He doesn't bow to anything. But, hallelujah... He has consistently revealed himself to not be a tyrant and an ogre. And there are two beautiful revelations in the first verses of 1 Timothy 1. Verse 1, the command of God our Saviour. Verse 2, God the Father. God the Father. These are two very precious bits of revelation about God. God who can decide in himself what he is, if you like, but is consistent within his character, has revealed to us that he is a God who saves and fathers. Isn't that wonderful? That he is primarily the father of all. So when he wants to draw the curtain back and give us, with our funny little squeaky brains, just a little bit of revelation, he says, I'm a saviour. I'm a God who saves you from your own folly. I'm a God who saves you when you're in trouble. God the Saviour. And another, here's another bit of revelation. God the Father. All fathers should be getting their model from God. Don't think of earthly fathers and try and think God's like that. That's the wrong way around. God is the Father of all. He is the model Father. And that is his heart towards us. What can we expect from this God? Look at verse 2 again. Grace, mercy and peace from God. What beautiful words. You think we could expect being beaten up, we could expect he would be an, a, ho, you know, a tyrant just a, or even just a holy, ruthless sort of authoritarian figure. No, grace, mercy and peace. God is a God of grace. That is free, unmerited favour. And we're going to learn before we finish this morning, he is abundant in his grace. He's not got just a little bit, that's his main thing. He flows in grace. God loves to be gracious. Mercy. We're told in the Bible he is rich in mercy. We're not talking about God is basically really heavy and nasty, but he's got a little bit of mercy. Occasionally is merciful. No, we're told he's rich in mercy. You're always on a winner when you ask God for mercy. You will always find a rich vein of God 
when you talk about mercy. God is essentially merciful. main problem is people don't want him to mercy. They want him to do this and that for him. They think they're okay. They want God to be their little sort of magic operator. That, if you, God won't operate like that. But if you start drawing on his grace and drawing on his mercy, you're on a winner. Because he is a merciful God, compassionate and pardoning. Peace from God our Father. God wants peace with us. Men and women are rebels. They are turning their back on God. The devil has stirred up a lot of trouble. He himself is against God. But actually, God is for peace. Christmas story, peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's God's revelation that we can have peace with him. He actually wants to bother to make peace with us. And he wants us to have peace in our hearts, peace in us, through his work, bringing tranquility to our soul, cleansing to our conscience, God is a God of peace. Grace, mercy and peace. Get it into you. Don't think God's on a, he's on a hard deal. He's, he's a nasty God. He's a tyrant. He didn't tell you that. I don't know who did tell you that, but he didn't tell you that. He told you, I am the creator. I can do what I like. There is no other. But I am a saviour. I'm a father. Grace, mercy and peace are the mainstreams of what I want to bring to you. And in order to do it, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, You'll find a lot of references to Jesus Christ in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Right here in verse 2. Christ Jesus, sorry, uh, uh, verse 1 in fact. Christ Jesus, our hope. We have a hope of knowing God. What is it? Christ Jesus. This God has come down and stooped down to us. He's revealed himself to us most fully in Christ Jesus. We can't really see him, but if we get a biggest glimpse of his glory... In Christ Jesus. And he is our hope of grace, mercy and peace. It's how we enjoy grace, mercy and peace. So, look on at verse 5. Here, verse 15, I beg your pardon. Verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How bottom line is that? I just love the Bible. It's so uncomplicated. We all try really hard. You have to study it for about four years with all sorts of things to get complicated about it. But actually, it is really very simple, but in a great, profound way, not a simplistic way. This is the bottom line that Paul believed fundamentally. Timothy believed it. It's what drove them. It's what strengthened their own lives, which is what Paul's on about here, really. But it's also what drove them forward. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, he calls this a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance. This is no mere formula. This isn't some little thing. People say, oh, it might have been a saying that the early church repeated. Yeah, it might well have been. And we can repeat it as well. But they believed it. It wasn't some sort of little saying, you know, like, oh, I don't know, too many cooks spoil the broth. <laughs> Christ came to save sinners, you know. You know, many hands make light work. <laughs> it's in their Christmas crackers. No! We're talking about a trustworthy saying, a fundamental revelation. And it deserves full acceptance. The meaning of that is it should be accepted by everyone. It's for everyone. It's a saying worthy of acceptance by everyone, whatever religion they think they're on and whatever colour they are, whatever type they are, this is for, for everyone to accept that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's, that's something to take to the world. That's what Paul's saying. That's something for all of us to live by. Hallelujah. 
It's so profound. I've not got time to unpack it. Christ Jesus came into the world. It has in it the sense of the incarnation. There is in that a sense that he had a pre-existence. He arrived. He came into the world. It's a phrase Jesus uses. Paul rarely uses it. Jesus does use it. And it suggests what is true. That Jesus did not start when he was born. He came into the world. God manifest in the flesh. Only he would be good enough to solve our problem of sin. He came to save sinners. He had one key mission, to save sinners. Isn't that amazing? That is Jesus' chief mission, to save sinners. Boy, do we add bits to it for him. But that was his chief mission. He changed location. He humbled himself. He came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come as an example. He didn't come to show us how to live. He didn't come to bring us some message from God, like some being from another planet. He didn't come to show us how to improve our life. He came to save sinners. Now, all those other things people think and attribute to him, they are not mainstream what Jesus came about. He didn't come to do those things. He actually came to save people who couldn't save themselves. You will only enjoy knowing Jesus Christ when you fundamentally understand you are a sinner that needed saving. If you think you're a bit, not as all I should be, but a bit of polishing up and a few good ideas, and I might be quite reasonable, you will never know Jesus Christ. You have to start off saying, I am a sinner. Without him saving me, I would be lost. There's no two ways about it. We can know Jesus whoever we are, if we'll come on the basis of, I'm a sinner who needs saving. Now, that salvation is profound and wonderful. It's saved from judgment. It's saved from the wrath of God, the holiness of God, if you like, against our sin. It's being saved from not only the um, guilt of sin, but it's power. It's being saved from the bondage of sin. The perpetual tendency to do what we don't want to do and to not be able to do what we do want to do, which we all sort of understand. Well, that's sin, really, and it's a lot worse than we think it is because the Ten Commandments, as you know, while I was preaching on it, shows us that it really is quite a significant problem. (laughs) It's a very deep problem. But Jesus came to break that bondage to sin, to change our hearts, to save us not just for eternity, but right here and now. To save us physically, if you like, spiritually, mentally, psychologically. To bring wholeness to us. To change our lives. To save us from sin. Not only its judgment, but from its effect in our lives now. Its power now. That is part of the gospel. He came to save us from the power of the devil. The devil had his hand on us because of our sin. We're rebels. We're in his territory. He can do what he likes with us. Jesus came to bring us rescue us actually from the kingdom of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of light, his kingdom, which takes us out of Satan's power base. And he saved us from Satan's power. Isn't that a good salvation? We've got to believe it, folks. You've got to live by it. Paul has been on the road for goodness knows how many decades. He's now an older man and he still is so excited at that truth. I get excited. You must get excited. You can't, well, I've been a Christian 40 years. I've heard this many, many times, John. Who could have something, talk about Ezekiel's left toe or something that makes me interested. Look, were the wheels, what were the wheels with the eyes in them? I'd be very interested to know that. Well, yeah, I'm sure you would. But if you don't get excited about this, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. Paul is 
he's acres, I don't know how long he's been a Christian, I don't know, 30, 40 years, he's serving God, and he still can't stop it, he bursts into praise after he's said it. Because he understands it, and this is the key, personally. Did you see the personal pronouns? Do you see the me's and the eyes? Well, they're here too, of whom I am the worst. This is not doctrine and theory, this is what he believes. Jesus saved me. <laughs> And I, I mean, he, you know, maybe it's hyperbole was the worst. He certainly was a nasty bit of work. Uh, but that, that's not the point. That's how he saw it himself. And that's a valid way to see it. Because he's just humble. He just knew he needed mercy. He's, he's confident in Jesus and not confident in himself. He, he, all this Hebrew of the Hebrews, then he went to the equivalent of the top Jewish university and all the rest of it. He actually calls it dung, or probably something more less polite than that in Greek, but we won't go there because we're in Winchester. So actually, he, he really is quite outspoken about his background. And he, he, but he, he, this is what really presses his buttons, that Jesus saved me and chose me. Me, Paul! Fantastic! I know Jesus. I'm saved. Do you know Jesus? Are you saved? Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Good stuff. It's got to get personal, brothers and sisters. It's not just an, a news. It's, an, it's immediately, and I am the word. It's immediately personal. It's a profound truth, which is for everyone. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's an absolute banner truth for the world. But it's also, and I'm one of them. I'm one of the ones he saved. That's what it is. He came in, he's saving millions, but he got me as well. And, I, and Paul says, I'm an example. If they can save me, he can save anyone. And that's probably a valid point. Because although he might not have been like Hitler, he was a nasty, violent man, but he was, above all, he was arrogant, and he was absolutely confident he was right, and he was soaked in Judaism, and actually, he would have been a hard nut to crack. And he said, if, if God can get hold of me, he can get hold of anybody. He can get hold of anybody. Sorry, it's probably my shouting, don't worry. Probably woke him up, or her up, or it's him, isn't it? Um, and, you know, <laughs> hopefully you heard truth. <laughs> it is exciting, it is exciting. It excites me. And, and Paul, we can't, we can't stop, we will stop. We can't stop without looking at verse 14. Look at, that's what we're going to end on. Look at verse 14, because it's part of this same sort of flow, if you like. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That is his personal response, which is what I want us to focus on as we worship in a few minutes. That actually, Paul understood that I have just received abundant grace. Now, it is a lovely phrase. I can't ignore it. Grace was poured out on me abundantly. Quite often, Paul links the word abundant with grace in the New Testament. You can find it yourself. And that word in Greek was flood. Like a, it was the same word used for a river in flood. And we've seen that this summer, haven't we? You can see what happens when a river floods. We haven't seen it here, praise God, but we've seen it in other parts of the country. Whole areas just seem flooded with water. What was going along about, you know, 20 feet wide or 20 yards wide suddenly seems to be miles wide. Well, that's what it is. God's grace floods me. Isn't that lovely? Why do you have that in your spirit? I'm flooded with the grace of God. Whew, this isn't a little drip. This is flooded. The grace of the Lord flooded me. Let's put it in that way. That's what he's saying. Flooded me. Oh, no, wonderful. I said, oh, I've just, I just, it's like a flood. <laughs> grace of God's like a flood. This isn't intellectual ideas. This is experiential. You're meant to experience this. 
This is meant to change your life. It does. It produces faith and love, says Paul. And it does produce that. Real grace always produces faith and love. There are phony versions. Sometimes people think grace means tolerance, very easy going, sloppy and careless, anything goes, doesn't matter. Hey, the grace of God, I can do what I like. No, actually, if you really understand the grace of God, its fruit is faith and love. It, it, I just believe God. I grow in faith and I grow in love. And those three, big three, are always together in the New Testament. Grace, faith and love. Let me just say that. They are very important. They're interlocked. They're interlocked. You don't separate them. They don't get separated. They're not separated here. For example, faith is real faith when it works in love. Effective real faith, hear this, is never condemning, harsh and proud. There are people who think they're big in faith and they're proud, harsh and legalistic. They ain't. They're not moving in faith. Real New Testament faith is always linked with love. Now, love always is rooted in faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not a benign tolerance of sin. It's not. Love is not here or should be thought of as something isolated from faith and grace. Love is rooted in your faith in Jesus Christ. Love is rooted in your understanding of the grace of God. You don't experience real love any other way. It's a God thing, love. It's not an entity that floats out there on its own. You know the Beatles saying, all you need is love. Sentimental nonsense. Garbage. All you need is love. It doesn't work. Just look at their lives. Look at poor old John Lennon. He couldn't even love his first wife, could he? Couldn't stay with her. Then he bust up with Paul McCartney. Where's the lo- you know, what's that? It's just sentimental like a Christmas card. All you need is love. Well, it isn't all you need. You need grace and you need faith. You need to know Jesus Christ. You need to receive the grace of God. Then you'll understand love. And then love will make some sense to you. You'll understand what the Bible means by love. If you need to know more, read 1 Corinthians 13. There is a powerful truth there. Grace, faith and love just flowing to me. And that's how Paul just overflows with his joy and delight as he comes to an end. That's where I'm going to end this morning.